Right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Optimum Living show. So the first episode is going to be on marathon training. I thought it was quite topical since on Sunday I ran the Yorkshire Marathon. So I did 26.2 miles and yeah, it was it was good. Overall, it was a fantastic experience that I'd recommend to anyone. On the day we showed up, we performed credit to my training. The weather was beautiful, carb loaded the day before. It was great. So I'm really glad that I managed to pull it off in such an elegant fashion. There were no injuries during the run. I made sure to stretch and fuel properly. Basically, it was smooth sailing for most of the 26.2 miles. I would say that the last couple miles were a bit gruesome. Well, not gruesome, but they were just a bit more uncomfortable than the rest of the race, as was expected. But apart from that, yeah, it was great. Really, really good time. Definitely would recommend the best high I've had in a long, long time. We'll get on to my experience and we'll dive deeper into my thoughts surrounding the event later on in the show. But now I'm just going to introduce episode one of the Optimum Living podcast. So in this episode, we're going to embark on an in-depth exploration of the art and science of marathon training. This will most likely be the first instalment of a multi-part series on marathon training because um, it's quite an extensive topic. This episode will predominantly cover the basics. And when I say the basics, it will cover all the basics. So it's not like just going to be a simple video with bullet points. It's going to be quite an extensive breakdown of the basics. And if there are some terms that I use, I will be trying my best to explain those specific terms and define them as best I can. What's good for you and what's good for me as well is that I'm going to be following the science. I'm this is going to be uh, predominantly a science-based show, obviously providing the latest literature and trying to be as accurate as possible to find what most people would consider to be the objective truth behind um, a lot of complicated fitness topics. However, today we're trying our best to make the extensive marathon basics as simple as we possibly can. And if there are any confusions, I will address them in a later episode. But um, the following episodes will probably be more complex and to do with the kind of more intricate details surrounding marathon training and endurance training in general. But I thought this episode, it was it was very topical considering, you know, I've just run a marathon. So yeah, I'm fresh off that. So it's fresh in my mind and more willing to go into depth about it. And uh, yeah, I thought that would in turn benefit the people viewing if I'm a bit more kind of knowledgeable surrounding a certain topic. I don't have to do as much research and I can, well, not just predominantly give you anecdotal feedback, but I can always relay my thoughts and my experience and give tips out, relay stuff that I found useful, training tips, dietary tips, supplement tips, recovery protocols, whatever it may be. Okay, so this show will not just state what you should do without explaining why you should do it. Ignorantly following a routine will not help you sustain a routine. It's best to know why you're following that routine, in my opinion anyway. For others, ignorance may be bliss. They may just be able to kind of robotically follow a routine without actually knowing why they're doing it. That's okay for some people. They just have that kind of like worker mentality. They can they can fully do that and, you know, credit to those people. But personally, I enjoy knowing why I'm doing a certain thing. I think that's extremely useful. Okay. So in this episode, we shall discuss what the science says, but we'll refer to the fact that tailoring your marathon preparations to fit your individual needs um, is extremely important. 
Okay, so today, Optimum Living shall be your compass through the intricate landscape of marathon preparation. We will leave no aspect untouched, as we will navigate through the latest scientific insights, offering comprehensive guidance on how to excel in marathon training, from meticulously designed training regimes and precise nutritional strategies to advanced recovery techniques and the judicious use of supplements will equip you with the knowledge you need to ultimately succeed. Before we discuss the vital marathon training protocols, let's first get real simple. What is a marathon? A marathon is a long distance running race with an official distance of 26.2 miles, 42.2 kilometers, or 1.6 million inches. The race is named after the Greek town of Marathon, where according to legend, a messenger named Pheidippides ran from the town of Marathon to Athens in 490 BC to deliver the news of a Greek victory over the Persians in the Battle of Marathon. Modern Olympic distance and Windsor Castle. Okay, so the modern Olympic marathon distance was standardized at 42.195 kilometers during the 1908 London Olympics to accommodate the course at Windsor Castle. It has been the standard distance ever since that. So marathons are known for their challenging nature, requiring significant physical endurance and mental toughness. They are typically conducted on roads or on a combination of roads and trails and they attract both elite athletes competing for top honours and recreational runners seeking to complete a marathon, or PR. The marathon racing has become a popular and prestigious event in the world of running, with major city marathons such as the Boston Marathon, New York Marathon, the London Marathon, and I suppose the Yorkshire Marathon. Completing a marathon is a significant accomplishment and a goal for many runners and fitness enthusiasts. Now we're going to just quickly explain how to enter a marathon very quickly because I felt like it was a useful piece of information to include because some people, I don't know, they may be put off by actually entering a marathon because they are confused about the entering process and whether you get free entry or you have to pay for it. How much does it cost to pay for it? Regular stuff like that. Is it as simple as you just press enter and you're entered? Sometimes it's not really the case. Sometimes you have to enter a ballot and then you're chosen out of a hat and then you decide whether you can enter or not. But yes, we're going to explain that quickly. Okay. So some are different from others. The London Marathon, for example, it's a very prestigious event, very well known. It's an illustrious event that everyone and their granddad wants to compete in. This means that if you want to enter, your name has to be chosen from a hat in the sense that when you sign up on the website, you will enter into a ballot. And when the time comes around each year for your name to be chosen or everyone's name to be chosen, you may or may not be selected from that ballot. And if you're not, you're going to have to try again next year. And if you are, best hope you've been training or you should get to training real soon. So for less attended events, uh, you won't be entered into a ballot. You'll just be, you'll just enter straight on the website and pay or just sign up for free, whatever it may be. And then you're registered, you're done, you're entered, train, have fun. The cost of entry, some events are free, but most events uh, hosting the marathon distance require payment. Sometimes the event offers a charity entry, as I just said, like a free charity entry, which means you won't have to pay as long as you raise money for charity. That was the case when I participated in the Bournemouth Half Marathon in 2022. So they had a charity entry option and it was free entry. So I was like, well, and I can also raise money for charity, which is a good thing, you know, two good things. Um, so I thought I'd just do that. But you have to raise money for charity. I don't believe there was a minimum amount that you had to raise. I'm rather unsure of that. But I believe in some cases 
there has to be because you know some people would just they they do it for free say they're going to raise money for charity set up a fundraising page and you know not look back at it or check on it or actually like promote that they're doing the race and try raise as much money as possible there'll be some people that actually do that um but not me when i did the bournemouth half marathon in 2022 i believe i raised about 700 pounds for it which is pretty good going for this year i raised money for the same charity alzheimer's research uk once again and i've raised 1070 pounds i believe at the moment and my goal was a thousand pounds so very good brilliant i'm um, yeah thank you to everyone that donated if you are indeed watching this it's important to remember that not all events offer the free charity entry for example this year as i said i was training for the um Yorkshire Marathon. And although I raised money for a charity, they didn't have a charity entry. So I still had to pay for it. Um, I believe I paid £40. Other events are more expensive than others. For example, I mean, London, because it's so illustrious, you know, you don't know whether you're actually signed up for it or not. Your name will be chosen out of a hat. Plus it's more expensive. So for the Yorkshire Marathon, I paid £40 to enter, but the London Marathon, you pay £69.99, I believe. And if you're an international entrance, it's more expensive at £146. Okay. So extreme triathlon, such as Ironmans and Scotsman's, they'll be a bit more expensive because obviously it costs you more to actually enter, but then the equipment that you'll need will set you back a lot of money, plus like travel expenses and all that sort of stuff. So, because I'm not entirely sure if people have like road bikes and wetsuits, you know, tip top quality road bikes and wetsuits, mind you, just laying about their house. Obviously, they're going to have to factor that in when they actually sign up for it as well. So to give you a ballpark of how much an Ironman triathlon will probably be, you'll be paying around £500 before kit and travel expenses, etc. Okay. So your running package, say you've signed up for the for the marathon or whatever you're doing, you'll then most likely be sent a running package by the event organizers. Okay. So once you're officially signed up for the event, between then and event day, you should receive your race day essentials pack, which usually comes in the form of your race number card, pins to attach it to your shirt, your running shirt when you're actually doing the race, number card and a bag tag if you have bags to drop off before the actual race in some lockers that they'll have for you there. Starting a fundraising page. So for example, if you did a charity entry or you just did a paid entry, but you're also raising money for charity, like a lot of people do, um, you're probably going to have to start a fundraising page yourself. But if you do a charity entry on the website, the website being where you actually sign up for the event, not the website of the charity. So you sign up for the event on the event website, okay? But they may have an option for a charity entry. When you do that, the charity will be alerted that you're raising money for them and may help you set up a fundraising page. However, that might not be the case. For example, it wasn't the case for me when I signed up for the full marathon, okay? So I just did regular entry and separately, I, I'd start a fundraising page and raise money for Alzheimer's Research UK. So I got in contact with them and I was like, I'm gonna raise money for you. You know, this is proving that I'm actually doing the event going to start a fundraising page. And then we just got in contact and they were, you know, well shuffed about that. Most of the time they'll be alerted and they can help you set up the fundraising page. Or if you are really clueless, you just can look it up. So I'd go to places like Just Giving, for example, GoFundMe, Total Giving, and I create a page there, ensuring to add details about why you created the page, why you chose that specific charity, etc. Okay. It's just good for people to, to know, you know, that like if, if they know why you're raising money for that charity and you've got a bit of history with um, the charity or, you know, the disease or condition or whatever the charity is supporting, you know, there's sort of some sort of connection there between, between you and that. It's, it, it's good to know. It's good for people to know why. Okay. It gets them a bit more invested in your endeavor 
and might even make, say, random people that don't even know you donate to the charity specifically because your story is so touching and enticing and heartfelt. Okay. So for my half marathon and full marathon, I used Just Giving. Very easy. Okay. So promoting the fundraising page. As you can imagine, you got to promote it through social media if you want, you know, the most amount of reach. Obviously, it helps to have more followers. Make sure to copy the link and add it to the bio of your social media platforms. For example, your Instagram, your TikTok, your YouTube, um, your Facebook, your Twitter, your LinkedIn, don't know, whatever it may be. Okay. So, fundraising pages should require an email to set up. And this is how you'll be notified when someone actually donates to your page. Um, ensure to thank them when you actually do receive a donation, of course because it's very generous of people. So contacting the charity and race about a free t-shirt. This is just a small like side tangent. I mean, you'll probably get sent this anyway. If you uh, get in contact with a charity, they'll probably just send you off some merchandise to, to run the race in. Um, but if you, if you don't know anything about that, and if you want to just inquire about it, you know, there's no harm in actually emailing the charity. Um, you're probably going to be entitled to a free t-shirt to wear during the race to represent the charity. Uh, you do not have to wear it. Obviously the, um, raising the most money is paramount when you're dealing with charities, but it's a nice addition. The charity may automatically offer you a free t-shirt, as I said, but in some cases you may need to reach out and ask and they'll be much obliged to send you off a free t-shirt. And I'm pretty sure you won't have to pay for it because I mean, it's like free advertising basically, isn't it? So once you've entered and your place has been confirmed, you are ready to begin. Now we're going to move on to part one of the show which is training. This is the part of the show where we'll discuss the basic training protocols and how to ensure your body is properly adapted for the big day. We will discuss short tempo and hilly runs, how much time you should allocate for training and how to taper before a big race to ensure you are in fighting shape for marathon day. We'll also discuss long runs, which are fundamental. If you want to prepare yourself adequately for the big day, long runs, trying to mimic your marathon day pace, as well as the kind of marathon day atmosphere, you know, the adrenaline that builds up, the nerves that build up um, before long runs in training will help you cope with the final big long run at the end of your training, that being the full marathon. Okay. I believe that when deciding to participate in an event like this, the goal should not just be completion but to put in a good time, a time that's worth being proud of. Because I mean, you, you work for so long, you've uh, been through arduous training, obviously it depends how much training you've actually done, but it's good to have a good time. You know, it's something to be very proud of. Because sometimes imagine if you, you put in all that effort and you didn't apply yourself on the day and you ended up getting a time that you just weren't proud of. It just, it, you know, you wouldn't have that same feeling, that same high, but of course, completing a marathon anyway, full stop is an amazing achievement, obviously. So the number of people that I've actually spoken to in the last four months who have completed a marathon, but were kind of disappointed when they were talking about it, they had some sort of like disappointed tone in, in their speech just because they didn't complete it in like a time that they were happy with. So to avoid this, train properly and train with vigor and perform on marathon day, obviously. So the fundamentals, marathon training consists of four main building blocks, base mileage, easy runs, speed slash tempo runs and long runs. Okay. So base mileage and running frequency. The base mileage should be built up over time, running three to five times per week, depending on your schedule. According to the less is more marathon training plan by the University of Harvard, running three days a week is enough. Running three days a week decreases the overall time commitment of the program and the risk of injuries. They mentioned that 
Um, you have three types of runs to do, you know, once every week, basically. Simple. Personally, I would agree with this, especially if you have a busy schedule, just ensure not to miss a run. Okay. So if you do miss a run on the day, don't just wait till the next week to restart the three days a week. Just do it the next day. Okay. Don't be missing out on a run, even if your schedule is, you know, misshapen slightly. Okay. So how long should you train for before a marathon? A question that many people want to know. I certainly wanted to know when I was first uh, signing up to do the marathon. Okay, so many runners typically allocate a training period between 16 to 20 weeks for a marathon preparation. During this phase, your heart muscles and mental endurance require gradual conditioning to meet the upcoming demands. Okay, it's crucial to follow a structured training regimen um, that progressively enhances your fitness and stamina. As we know, in the gym world, that is called progressive overload. And without training for progressive overload, you're not going to make any progress. That's basically how it is. Once you've got to a certain point in muscularity, obviously, of course, you make progress when you're an absolute beginner, but that's a different story for another day. Okay, simultaneously, this plan should incorporate adequate time for recuperation and repair with a recommended minimum of three days rest weekly. However, that's recommended. For a lot of people, especially young people, you won't need three days rest. Even if you're running three days a week, you can, you can still go to the gym if you're an avid gym goer. You can do other things. You don't have to just solely, you know, these three days are my rest days. No excuses. Going to rest on those days. Okay. Don't just try and make excuses. You don't really need three solid full rest days, even on marathon prep, but it is important to recover and recuperate. So while the 16 to 20 week duration serves as the general guideline. Some runners opt for a shorter, say 12 week program while others extend their training over 24 weeks or even longer. Ultimately, the key is to design a training plan that aligns with your specific needs and goals. But of course, generally, depending on how hard you train, training for longer is always better. How many miles should you cover overall in training? Beginner to veteran. Let's just go over that quickly. So the idea number of weekly miles for marathon training can uh, vary significantly due to several influencing factors. Therefore, the range of overall marathon weekly mileage is considerably broader and open to more debate than the average peak distance for marathon long runs, the average peak distance being 20 miles in training. Okay. So if you're a beginner, they recommend doing no more than 20 to 22 miles in training. Okay. That's not really up for debate. However, the overall weekly mileages and how many overall miles you should cover in your training block plus marathon day. Okay. So in case of, in the case of novices embarking on their first marathon journey, their marathon training often encompasses approximately 35 to 40 miles per week in the height of training. You're going to build up to that eventually, of course. So for seasoned marathon runners, the veterans aiming to achieve a personal record or those with extensive training experience, their weekly marathon training mileage may extend to 40 to 60 miles. Okay. Plus competitive and sub elite marathon runners maintain a average weekly mileage of well above 70 to 90 miles, which is pretty pretty intense. That's, that's pretty good going. That's like full-time job. You're just running nine to five, five days a week, you know? Lastly, professional and elite runners frequently surpass the 100 mile mark in their marathon training regimens, often ranging from 110 to 140 miles per week, which is even more ballistic and even more crazy 
than the competitive and sub-elite marathon runners. 110 to 140 miles a week, you're doing nothing but running. You ain't sleeping. You ain't having some freaky time with the missus. She's, get, she's over there getting all frustrated and you're there cut doing like 140 miles a week and you're like, sorry, you know, priorities, love. That's crazy, yeah. I mean, I don't think I'll ever get to that point. You never know though. There may be some event that I need to train for where I have to do 140 miles a week, but I'm not a professional or elite runner and I don't really plan to be. It's more of a kind of passion project, all this running that I'm doing. However, I consider myself, as I said, to be a hybrid athlete and I'm willing to push my body to its limits. Okay, so now we come to the easy run. So easy miles encompass all the remaining miles within your training regimen. Those that do not fall under the categories of tempo runs, intervals, or long run distance efforts. They can constitute a significant portion of your weekly mileage. Okay, so the distance of easy runs during the marathon training can vary widely based on your training plan experience and individual fitness level. Typically, easy runs may range from 3 to 8 miles, 5 to 13 kilometers, or more. The key is to focus on time rather than distance. Some of these runs, especially during longer sessions, for example, you might have an easy run scheduled for 45 minutes to an hour. It's important to listen to your body and adjust the distance and duration to ensure these runs remain comfortable and conductive to recovery because ultimately they're a recovery run. So often I do an easy run after my long run. So my long run would be on Sundays and then I conduct my easy run on say Tuesdays. You're sore from the long run and it's just about, you know, breaking in the muscles again, warming up a little bit for later on in the week where you're going to do your temper runs and another long run. Okay. Just getting the muscles warmed back up again um, and just flushing out the remaining lactic acid. The length and frequency of easy runs will typically increase as you build your endurance and prepare for the race. Easy runs, as the name suggests, should be run slowly and what's known as a conversational pace. Okay, so what is a conversational pace? As the name suggests, a conversational pace is a running speed that you can hold a conversation at. Easy runs serve as recovery runs. Do not run them too fast as you won't achieve the desired benefits. Okay. There's heart rate zones that you can worry about when it comes to easy runs. You've got to make sure to run in zone zone one, I believe, zone two, um, but nothing above that. And if you run anything above that, you're not going to get the desired benefit. However, running zones we'll probably dive deeper into on a future episode. Okay. So the purpose of easy runs turns out that when running allegedly pace, they play a pivotal role in fostering fundamental adaptations. So on these relaxed training days, your primary engagement is with your slow twitch muscle fibers. Okay. These fibers possess a higher concentration of uh, mitochondria, elevated levels of aerobic enzymes and greater capillary density compared to their fast twitch counterparts, which come into play during higher intensity, say speed workouts, for example. So I'm just going to break down what slow twitch muscle fibers are, as well as fast twitch muscle fibers, as well as mitochondria, capillary density, and ATP. Okay, so starting off with slow twitch muscle fibers. Slow twitch muscle fibers or type 1 fibers contract slowly, resist fatigue, and excel in endurance activities, and rely on oxygen for sustained energy production. Fast twitch muscle fibers or type 2 fibers contract quickly and generate high force. Okay, so you can imagine they'd be good for sprinting, but they fatigue rapidly, making them ideal for explosive high intensity activities that don't really require too much oxygen. Mitochondria. Mitochondria are tiny 
energy producing powerhouses within our cells that convert the food we eat um, and oxygen we breathe into a molecule called ATP, which stands for adenosine triphosphate. And adenosine triphosphate is basically our body's like energy currency. Okay. Our cells use it as their primary source of energy for various functions in the body. So ATP, adenosine triphosphate, is a molecule that stores and provides energy for cellular activity in the body. So capillary density. So capillaries are tiny blood vessels that connect arteries and veins. Capillary density refers to the number of these small blood vessels in a specific area of tissue. Okay, it impacts the delivery of oxygen and nutrients to that tissue. Okay, according to Ben Berglund, the principal principal sports psychologist at Vault Sports Lab in Flagstaff, Arizona, in the United States. Uh, these easy days, he says, serve as a crucial building block. He says, you increase mitochondria and capillaries and blood flow to those muscles, meaning they're better equipped to harness oxygen. Without this foundation, he quotes, the more intense runs wouldn't be possible. So get your easy runs in. And we're going to break down a little study now from the International Journey of Sports Physiology and Performance. So a 2013 study found that recreational runners who engaged in polarized training, okay, polarized training, a method of low intensity workout significantly improved their 10K times after 10 weeks. One group spent 77% of their time doing low intensity workouts, 3% doing moderate intensity workouts, a very small amount, and 20% doing, doing high intensity workouts, a method known as polarized training. Okay. So it focuses on predominantly on low intensity workouts, a very minute amount on moderate intensity workouts and a decent, decent chunk on high intensity workouts, but still a lot less than low intensity workouts. Okay. So the other group spent 46% of their time doing low intensity workouts, 35% doing moderate intensity workouts, and 19% doing high intensity workouts. Okay, so you've got one group doing polarized training where they do 77% of their training at low intensity, 3% moderate intensity, and 20% at high intensity. Then you've got the second group that's doing 46% of their time um, at low intensity, 30, 35% of their time, moderate intensity, and 19% of their time at high intensity. All right. So two groups, the polarized training group saw nearly doubled improvement in time, shaving about 41 seconds off their total time. Okay. This finding was consistent with the 2014 study in the frontiers in physiology, which found that endurance athletes who followed a high volume training threshold training high intensity interval training or polarized training protocols show the most improvements in VO2 max, time to exhaustion and peak velocity and power. Okay. Just to define it really quickly, polarized training is all about scaling down moderate intensity running to focus on purely the easy and hard running efforts. Polarized training can be de defined as on a micro and macro scale, for example, just at the two ends of the spectrum. Hence the name polarized. Training is separated into low intensity and high intensity zones with you know very little variation in the middle. Okay. Second individual easy runs are very easy. So the low intensity workouts are really low intensity. They're easy. They're not to be strenuous whatsoever, purely for recovery. However, the high intensity workouts 
are particularly difficult. They're very difficult. So very, very easy and very, very hard polarized training for you. Okay. Just a quick tangent, quick insight into polarized training. And now back to our regularly scheduled program, tempo runs. Okay. Tempo run is a faster pace, sustained effort during a marathon training where you run comfortably hard, but not at all out sprints. It helps improve your lactate threshold, enhancing your body's ability to run for longer and faster without fatigue. During marathon training, tempo runs typically range from uh, three to six miles or five to 10 kilometers or even longer, depending on your training plan and level of fitness. Tempo runs should be completed at least once per week, but these runs will require you to run faster and place more stress on your nervous system and muscles and bones. Okay, so you may need longer to recover. Lactate threshold. I mentioned that before. I'm going to define that quickly. The lactate threshold is the exercise intensity and which lactic acid accumulates in your muscles faster than your body can clear it away, causing muscle fatigue. It's a key factor in endurance and performance. Okay. Tempo runs also help to increase your cardio capacity and anaerobic capacity. So cardio capacity or cardiovascular capacity refers to the ability of your heart and lungs to deliver oxygen to your muscles during physical activity. It reflects your overall endurance and fitness level. Anaerobic capacity. Anaerobic capacity. Is your body's ability to produce energy for high intensity, short duration activities without relying on oxygen and aerobic without oxygen. So the long runs. Next up, the long runs should be done every seven to 10 days, extending a run by a mile or two each week, scaling back by a few miles every three weeks is essential for recovery purposes. Okay. You don't want to be overtaxing your body and overtraining. That is the last thing you want to be doing, especially during marathon prep. It can be quite easy to overtrain. For example, I've done it numerous times because I also do resistance training as well. I also go to the gym on top of all my marathon training. So you know, not giving myself enough exercise or staying up too late one night, I was definitely feeling it the next morning. Okay. So most marathon training plans, the long run, as previously mentioned, peaks at 20 miles. Okay. It's not recommended you do more than 20 miles before the actual event because on race day, you'll pull the other six miles out of the bag, which I found to be the case because the longest I did in training from the Yorkshire marathon was 20 miles. Um, but 26 miles seemed like a not like a breeze, but it was just a bit easier than I expected it to be. Okay. Long runs help to build endurance and mental resilience for the marathon distance. They're necessary to prepare your body and mind for the uh, day ahead. If you like long runs help you build up aerobic capacity. Okay. So we discussed anaerobic capacity without oxygen. Aerobic capacity is your body's ability to use oxygen to produce energy for sustained endurance activities anaerobic without oxygen, aerobic with oxygen. So I suppose air, it's like air with air. I don't know. That's how I always thought about it back in school, you know, back in PE. The 20 miler should probably come um, at about six to eight weeks out. So between 16 and 22 miles, 20 miles, generally the recommended distance to cover. Okay. Depending on your training plan, of course. So typical pace, long runs are done at a slower pace, generally one to two minutes slower than your marathon pace. 
okay? And only you will know your marathon pace. Tapering before race day. So in the two or three weeks leading up to the marathon, scaling back significantly on overall mileage and difficulty of runs to allow the body to rest up is very important, okay? So I'm quickly going to break down a tapering study by the Frontiers in Sports and Active Living that was published in 2021. So this study aims to analyze the taper strategies of recreational runners to determine whether specific forms of taper were more or less favorable to race day performance. Okay, so the researchers analyzed the training activities of 158,000 recreational marathon runners and identified different types of taper based on duration and discipline. Results showed that strict tapers were associated with better marathon performance than relaxed tapers, and longer tapers of up to three weeks were associated with better performance than shorter tapers. Strict three-week tapers were associated with superior marathon finishing time benefits, with a medium finishing time saving of 5 minutes 32.4 seconds, or 2.6% compared to a minimal taper. Okay. Female runners were associated with greater finishing time benefits than men for a given taper type, for some reason. The study also highlights that most recreational runners, 64%, adopt less discipline two or three, uh, two week and three week tapers, suggesting that shifting to a more disciplined taper strategy could improve performance relative to the benefits of a less disciplined taper. Weight training alongside running can be good for a number of factors. So I'm going to detail them now. All right. So first of all, injury prevention, strength training can help prevent common uh, running related injuries by improving strength and stability of your muscles and your joints, as well as increasing your bone density. Studies have shown that resistance training can reduce the risk of um, overuse injuries caused by running, for example. Okay. So improved running economy, building strength through weight training um, can enhance your running economy allowing you to run more efficiently. Um, this is essential for marathon runners um, to maintain pace over a long distance and a long period of time. Okay, so running economy, just to define that, um, it refers to how efficiently your body uses oxygen while running, improving your body's ability to maintain a uh, steady pace and cover long distances with less effort. Increased muscle power. Strength training can boost muscular performance, which is... Um, Valuable for hill running, for example, you gotta you know have strong legs to be able to run up hills quickly with uh, with good pace, and uh, it's also good for sprint finishes during races. For example, in my uh, marathon attempts, the last like 500 meters, I believe, I sprinted towards the finish line, and it was great, absolutely amazing feeling. Like you're almost there, 500 meters sprint, just your legs feel like absolute jelly. They're like numb, but it's great. You know, you're still going for it. It can also help counteract the muscle fatigue that can occur during the late stages of a race, for example, having strong thighs, strong hamstrings, strong calves, etc. So during my training, focusing on leg training, kind of during the middle block, the middle block of training, um, not so much towards the end because I, I didn't want to just over fatigue the muscle, but you know, in the sort of center training legs was kind of essential for me because I just felt like it, it, it definitely, yeah, definitely did improve my leg strength and overall muscular endurance, which is, which greatly benefited my, um, overall running ability. Okay. So, uh, weight training alongside running can also lead to enhance, uh, endurance performance. Okay, so a 2010 study available from the International Journal of Sports Medicine um, titled Strength Training 
um, in endurance runners concluded that the um, concluded that maximal or explosive strength training performed concurrently at the same time um, as endurance training was more effective in improving strength and um, neuromuscular performance and in enhancing your VO2 max uh, and running economy in recreational endurance runners than concurrent circuit and endurance training. Okay, so a quick breakdown. Um, I'm just going to define VO2 max quickly. So VO2 max is the maximum amount of oxygen your body can use during intense exercise and is a measure of aerobic fitness. Okay, um, a quick fun fact about VO2 max. According to a recent study in the journal Mayo Clinic, um, your cardiorespiratory fitness is a major indicator of how long you'll actually live for. Okay, it can basically determine your longevity. And the better your VO2 max is, the longer you'll probably live. And just to add a bit of contradiction in there to contradict myself, I suppose, with different science. Uh, this is another 2010 study um, by the Journal of Strength and Conditioning titled The Effects of Concurrent Strength and Endurance Training on Running Performance and Running Economy in Recreational Marathon Runners. Okay. Uh, this study found there to be no benefits of an eight-week concurrent strength training for running economy and the coordination um, of recreational marathon runners despite a significant increase in leg strength. However, they determined that this study, um, the results of this study may be because of an insufficient sample size or the short intervention period. Okay, so don't take that study as gospel, but it's good to provide, you know, uh, an insight into both sides of the story. For example, um, a 2016 study by the Human Performance Research Group Center for Health and Sports Sciences in Brazil um, available on Springer Link found that explosive training and heavyweight training are effective um, concurrent training methods aiming to improve running economy within a few weeks. Okay. However, long-term training programs seem to be necessary when the largest possible improvement is required. Okay. So what's the verdict? Overall, my research has led me to believe that weight training alongside endurance training can lead to an overall improvement in running economy and therefore your overall endurance. So I would definitely recommend strength training and endurance training. So being a hybrid athlete, combining the two domains is not going to reduce your performance. In fact, it's going to increase your performance. Okay. It's going to benefit you, especially lower body training as well. But of course it's good to, uh, you know, get an upper body training session in all the running and all the weight training and all the protein intake. If you, if you properly nail your diet, um, you're going to look sick. You're going to look, you know, aesthetic. You're going to probably lose weight. Um, you're going to have adequate muscle mass as well as have the cardio to be able to transport that muscle mass around on a regular basis. So it's important to factor in, however, recovery when combining the two domains, because obviously, you know, training for a marathon is one thing, but combining marathon training with resistance training is also going to have to, it's going to require you to recover a lot more. So it's important to factor in recovery when combining the two domains. If you're training for a marathon, say three times a week, um, weight training a few times a week on top of that will increase the amount of recovery that your body needs. Weight training in the taper phase, the last few weeks before your marathon, um, is generally not recommended um, as this taper phase is designed to allow you to get the most amount of recovery possible. Um, a strenuous weight training session, like uh, you know, in the in the weeks or days before your big endurance event, that being a marathon, is is probably not 
best practice because it, it may inhibit your performance could you know lead to injury could compromise your back for example if you're doing like squats or deadlifts stuff stuff like that i would definitely avoid probably avoid deadlifts throughout the whole of your marathon training because i always felt they would compromise my back however i'm not you know, I'm not an avid deadlifter, but if you are, if your back is used to it and you have correct form, it's, it's, it's perfectly okay. Um, I would recommend that if you're, if you're used to it, of course, but generally, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, yeah. Bone health is the next one we're going to discuss. Okay. So weight bearing strength training can also contribute to better bone density and reduce risk of stress fractures, which can be a concern for long distance runners. Focusing on specific muscle groups um, with your resistance training. So when incorporating weight training into your marathon training plan, it's important to focus on exercises that will probably actually, that are quite specific and will benefit um, your running. Okay. So you're doing exercises in the gym that's going to translate to improve performance um, when you're out on the road or out on the track doing your running. All right. So best to train stuff like your lower body, as as previously mentioned, like squats, lunges, uh, and some core exercises, okay, for stability. Ensure that the strength training um, complements your running schedule, um, allowing for adequate recovery between sessions. Obviously, I mentioned that's extremely important. Remember also a well-rounded training program includes not only endurance training, um, uh, but also strength training, flexibility work, and proper nutrition to support your overall marathon goals. Okay, so that moves us quickly and nicely onto the next part, which is diet, nutrition, and hydration protocols one should employ during marathon training for optimal performance. Ensuring you fuel your body correctly during marathon prep is essential. All your hard work during training will be put to waste if you do not fuel correctly. Okay, constructing the correct nutrition and hydration protocol will ensure um, you can train and recover at your maximum potential. Okay, it's important to conduct research into what to eat, how much to eat, and when to eat before starting your marathon training. Obviously, I would highly recommend you do your own research as well as listening to videos like this. If this is your research and you're taking pointers from me, I'd be happy to, you know, entrust my information with you. First, we're going to discuss leveraging macronutrients so the body can derive energy from all three macronutrients, carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, although it has a preference for carbohydrates and fats. Um, consequently, individuals engaged in vigorous physical activities, such as athletes, often require higher quantities of carbohydrates and fats compared to those with a less active lifestyle, as you can imagine. So carbohydrates, when structuring your diet plan for marathon training, the primary focus should be on carbohydrates. Carbohydrates serve as the primary fuel source um, for your body as you strive to cross the marathon finish line in a good time. According to the ISSN, the International Society of Sports Nutrition, individuals following demanding training regimens should aim for a daily carbohydrate intake of five to eight grams per kilogram of body weight. Okay. But of course, that's just a rough guideline. You should be able to uh, work in symbiosis with your own body and figure out what works for you, okay? Through practice and maybe monitoring and tracking your diet and, you know, seeing what amount of carbs your body operates best on. However, those are the general guidelines, of course. Um, I'll later on in the show, I'll relay my own nutrition protocols. Um, but I'll give you, you know, little, little pointers here and there as we progress through the diet and hydration. Part of the show. 
Okay, so protein is the next macronutrient we're going to discuss. So protein is another essential macronutrient for marathon runners with an ISSN recommendation of 1.4 to 1.8 grams um, per kilogram of body weight per day. Uh, protein plays a vital role in recovery, injury prevention, and the maintenance of lean muscle, as we know. It's advisable to distribute protein intake um, throughout the day uh, with a particular focus on post-run consumption, okay? But there's no sort of like anabolic window, um, which is, you know, quite a, I suppose, polarizing term in the uh, bodybuilding industry because, you know, you do your workout, people think you've got to slam a protein shake like within 30 minutes of the workout. That is not true. Um, net protein intake throughout the day is, of course, um, paramount. Um, but, you know, within a couple hours of your big run or big workout, it's important to uh, get in protein, especially if you haven't intake in much protein before the actual run, which you probably haven't because the um, priority was carbohydrates. You know, the pre-run snack was probably just going to be carbohydrates, but, you know, depends. Okay, so the next macronutrient is fat. Incorporating fats into a marathon runner's diet is equally as important as the rest. The ISSN suggests maintaining a fat intake uh, approximately at 30% of the total daily calorie uh, consumption, though this can be adjusted upward to meet energy requirements as necessary. Okay, so what foods should you eat? It's advisable to select nutrient-dense foods throughout your training regimen, obviously, although junk food uh, might seem tempting for meeting calorie goals, it's not conducive to peak performance, okay? So an ideal marathon training diet should maintain a well-rounded uh, composition encompassing ample portions of whole grains, fruits, vegetables, lean proteins, and healthy fats. Okay, examples of lean protein, 5% fat mints, you got fillet steak, some sirloin steak, chicken, turkey mints, or turk, just turkey in general, healthy fats, you've got your eggs, you got your avocados, um, you've got your animal fats, just a couple of examples. It's important to make sure that you're eating more calories while training, obviously, because you're burning a lot of training and your body needs those calories to recover adequately, but eating more of the wrong foods can actually slow you down. So when your fuel is cleaner, less processed, and overall healthier, you'll find improvements in your performance. Okay? It's like, imagine... This is the car analogy. Imagine a car, you know, sports car. You're the sports car. You're the athlete that's training for a marathon. If you give that car, you know, shoddy quality fuel, you know, your, your basic unleaded, it's, it's probably not going to perform at its best. But if you give it that super unleaded, that premium unleaded, it's going to use that a lot more efficiently and effectively because it's high quality fuel. It's going to perform at its peak like it's supposed to. So that's how your body should work. Consider yourself a sports car and fuel it correctly. So when training for a marathon and, you know, when living life in general, I suppose you should avoid sugary um, drinks, spicy foods, deep fried foods, and highly over-processed foods. Okay, so there's a difference between processed and like ultra-processed foods, all right? It's best to know the difference. Um, ultra-processed foods being those with like, 30 ingredients on the package, like Rustler's burgers, for example, probably not best. But I mean, you get processed foods like some like protein yogurts and all that sort of stuff. But generally, you know, not considered junk food, but still technically processed foods, but not ultra processed. Okay. So they're not as bad for you. 
these foods are not going to be very easy on your stomach, especially spicy foods. So best not to eat that before a big run the next day. And they take more time to digest. Okay. Cause a lot of fried foods, for example, they're very oily, lots of fats. They're going to be, you know, slow digesting and your body's got to break down all the ultra processed foods. If you do eat that as well, cause it's not like whole foods. It's not like it's kind of, what is this? It's not particularly used to it. Okay. So cheat days and staying sustainable. Okay. Small section. Having a cheat day once in a while most likely does not harm your performance or undo all the hard work you have done. Once a month may be a, a, a good recommendation if you like, but um, if, you, if you must have a cheat day, but once a week is is probably not advisable because it's going to like disrupt your routine and it's hard to kind of like maintain a diet and, and see the kind of benefits that you want from the diet if you're having like a really, you know, gluttonous cheat day once a week. Um... Yeah. For example, overindulging on a cheat day, like the day before, like a long run of the week, you know, it's not going to be conducive to like peak performance. For example, if your diet is um, sustainable, meaning you're going to find healthy options um, and healthy alternatives to unhealthy foods, for example, you're ensuring you eat adequate calories and don't starve yourself and conduct research into tasty, but also healthy foods. You should not need a cheat day. Okay. For example, I eat dark chocolate, um, peanut butter, full fat Greek yogurt, um, and granola every day. You know, I, I, I've had that every day for like the past like five, six months when I've been doing my training. I monitor my portion sizes, obviously, and I don't like overindulge. And I eat these foods every day because I enjoy them. They're really nice. And they help me sustain my diet. Like it's peanut butter, it's dark chocolate, okay? I just don't overconsume them. I have them in my like um, protein oats in the morning and I have them in my granola bowl my, with my Greek yogurt and granola in the evening, like, like twice a day for months. But I monitor my calorie intake and my portion sizes to make sure I'm not over consuming. Okay. But then again, I am training for a marathon. So generally my calorie intake is going to be higher than most people's. Okay. So it's important to, to, to know how much, how many calories you're burning and how many calories you can therefore intake. Quick side tangent, but I think it's worth knowing the granola issue. Okay. So be mindful that some foods are higher in calories than you actually think. For example, I mentioned granola. Granola can be dangerous. In the uh, UK, on the back of most cereal boxes and granola packets, they state one serving is around 30 to 40 grams. The same applies to the granola that I eat. Um, when you actually weigh out 30 to 40 grams, it's a pathetic amount of granola. Because of this, people, they're like misled as 30 to 40 grams of granola, granola contains a relatively low amount of calories. Uh, so they just, you know, just pour themselves up a, like a bowl, what they consider to be like a decent size without weighing out. And like, oh yeah, that's, that's probably a serving. That's probably a serving. Um, but 30 to 40 grams, that's like 170 calories, but that's because it's a, just a pathetic amount of granola. Okay. But when you actually weigh out what most people will consider to be a decent serving of granola, say, I don't know, 150 to 200 grams, 150 is still not much at all, really, for me personally. So 200 grams plus is probably a decent size for most people. Okay. So 200 grams of that granola that I eat is 852 calories, which, you know, it's just a completely different ballpark. Okay. It's a big difference. So be mindful when it comes to uh, cereals in general. Side tangent over. Granola ran over, just thought it was worth mentioning. Um, when you come to track your calories, you'll learn that a lot of foods are a lot higher in calories than you thought. For example, I had a pasta sauce last night. Um, it was like an Arabiata one. 
can't remember which brand it was, but it was, you know, you just think it's going to be like tomatoes and you think it's going to be very low calories. So you just empty the whole jar in. But this one, this kind of like 700 gram jar of pasta sauce, yeah, which you think is just tomatoes was like 700, 800 calories. Like it's, it was crazy just because they have a lot of oil in these jars, these like pre-made pasta sauce jars. So, you know, keep your wits about you. Be careful, you know, because you never know that pasta sauce or that healthy granola just might come back to bite you. So creating a sustainable marathon prep diet. Okay. So how much should you eat? Marathon runners um, devote extensive hours to uh, continuous demanding physical activity. Regrettably, many runners try to um, tend to neglect the importance of their dietary choices. The adoption of a wholesome marathon training diet is pivotal for optimizing performance and streamlining the uh, training process. Okay, the initial step involves ensuring the intake of calories is sufficient to support heightened physical demands. Um, failing to match increased activity with proper nourishment can result in muscle loss, heightened susceptibility to illness, um, heightened stress, and disrupted sleep patterns, for example. So it's extremely important that you reach your calorie requirements. Okay, so calorie recommendations for individuals um, during marathon prep and those individuals that are also just training, you know, higher intensities a lot more often. Okay. So for, for individuals engaged in moderate to intense training, such as daily sessions lasting two um, to three hours or five to six days each week, the International Society of Sports Nutrition, ISSN, indicates a potential daily calorie requirements spanning from 2,000 to 7,000 calories um, based on an athlete's weight within the 50 to 100, um, 100 kilo range, that being 110 to 220 pound range. Yes, that is the recommendation of the ISSN, but once again, a range from 2,000 to 7,000 isn't particularly useful to find out how many calories you should eat, obviously. So even for men and women on the lighter end of the spectrum, weighing around 50 to 60 kilos or 110 to 132 pounds, eating around 2,000 calories, um, you know, with all that exercise that you're doing is, is probably not, you know, best. It's, it's, it's most likely going to be too little. Okay. So personally, I would advise eating more than that, especially if you're training five to six days a week. Okay. So do what works for you, but don't overindulge. Ensure that you're not overindulging just because you're training for a marathon. Very important to know. You don't want to put on any excess unnecessary weight because you are going to have to carry around that weight when it comes to race day and it's probably going to inhibit your performance. Okay. It's like wearing a weighted vest. Say over marathon training, you put on like 10 10 kilos. It's just like, you know, you build up to the day and then on the day you're basically carrying around a 10 kilo like weighted vest on top of, you know, running 26 miles. It's just be careful and monitor your calorie consumption. You don't have to be completely anal retentive about it, but it is important. Nutrition is extremely important. Cannot stress this enough. You want to perform like an athlete and you go and eat like an athlete. Okay. Except that that's your life from now on. And if you're really going to take this marathon training seriously, then that's what you're going to have to do. Okay. It's as simple as that. So here's a rough way to calculate your nutritional intake based on how long you are training for each day. This method is provided by Polar Electro. Um, Polar Electro is a Finnish manufacturer of sports training computers, particularly known for developing the world's first wireless heart rate monitor that goes around the chest, for example. Okay. So they recommend that 60 to 90 minutes of running requires 19 to 21 calories per pound of body weight. 90 minutes to two hours of running 
requires 22 to 24 calories per pound of body weight, and two to three hours of running requires at least 25 to 30 calories per pound of body weight. Okay, so for example, a runner who weighs 132 pounds, 60 kilos, um, and is doing a 90 minute run should ensure that they consume at least 2,904 calories to fuel the session properly. Okay, so that's a good calculator. All right, it's 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 not for everyone. Of course, people's metabolisms will be different. So it's important just to to nail your own routine, to track your own, work out your own maintenance calories, work out how many calories you're burning, and and then conduct and build your kind of diet protocols on top of that. Ensure to fuel properly on rest days also extremely important. So because it's a rest day, the goal is to recover. You need adequate nutrition to help with that recovery. So fueling on rest days is essential because it's sports recovery must repair an overall well-being. Adequate nutrition on rest days replenishes energy energy stores, helps prevent muscle loss, and ensures the body is prepared for the upcoming training sessions. Okay, it also aids in maintaining a balanced metabolism and supports immune function, promoting a sustainable and effective um, training routine. It's advisable to eat a similar amount of food to what you would normally do um, on running days, for example. However, it's best not to eat like you've um, completed, you know, your long run of the week on your rest day. For example, by that, I mean, after your long run, you probably burn the most amount of calories you'll burn that week. So generally you need to eat a bit more calories. Okay. And your overall calorie intake for the day will be quite high. However, your expenditure is also high. On rest days, your expenditure is low because you're resting, you're doing nothing. So you don't really need the same amount of calories that you would need on a long run day. Okay. But that's just common knowledge. If you're not doing any activity, you know, you don't need the excess calories to fuel your you know, minimal amount of performance. It's just common knowledge, but it's important to know fuel adequately on rest days. But again, don't overindulge. When I say, you know, eat your normal running diet, I don't mean your post long run meal. Just, you know, don't be doing that on rest days. Okay. Eat enough, but don't overconsume. You're recovering, but you're not expending. Okay. So if you want to monitor your calorie intake, so to actually work out how many calories you're eating and how many calories you potentially should eat during marathon prep, you can use tracking apps to track your calories and macronutrients. The easiest way to track your calorie intake is with popular food journals, for example, MyFitnessPal. Um, the app's nutrition database is extensive and with over 5 million different types of food. It also has barcode scanners um, for packaged food and it saves your favorite meals for convenient sort of logging. So you can just log a meal as a whole. So you eat the same thing every day. You just go on there, you click say breakfast and it has the breakfast that you consume every single day. So you don't need to individually go and weigh out your food and take time doing that. Okay. Um, other calorie track apps include NutriCheck, um, which is paid. My Macros Nutrition X Track Lose It exclamation mark, and more specialized paid apps like Carbon, for example, which offers sophisticated monitoring and science-savvy recommendations. Losing weight before a race, will it give you an advantage? So losing weight before a marathon should be approached with caution. It's important to distinguish between healthy weight loss and excessive weight loss, okay, as they can have different effects on marathon performance. 
healthy weight loss can, um, if you have like excess body fat to actually lose, if you're quite a ch- chunky lad or, or last before a race and you would benefit from losing a bit of weight, um, you know, it can improve your running, losing fat, um, by reducing the energy cost, um, of carrying that excess weight. However, this should be done gradually and to ensure you're, you know, you maintain your energy levels and you don't, you know, mess around with your hormones. Okay. Um, and your muscle mass as well. So if you cut too quickly and you lose weight too quickly, it's going to be hard to hold on to all that muscle mass. Okay. So if you have excess weight to lose, it would be worth losing it before you actually start your marathon preparations. Um, for example, so you want six months to lose weight, six months to uh, run a marathon. Ideally, don't combine the two. So you do your six months training and your six months of losing weight in that one six month block. It's best to spread it out into a whole year. Okay. So the first six months you dedicate to actually losing the weight and then you're in prime condition to actually begin your marathon training. And then you spend six months training for a marathon and you'll probably achieve a better performance. Personally, I can imagine it would be more conducive to improve performance. Excess or rapid weight loss can have a detrimental effect on your marathon performance and overall health. As I've already explained, it can lead to muscle loss, fatigue, decreased endurance, and a higher risk of injury. It may also hinder your ability to fuel your body properly during your training and the race. It's important to focus on overall health, obviously, proper nutrition and a well-balanced training regimen when preparing for a marathon. Um, The emphasis should always be on achieving your best performance and not just losing weight. Okay, now we're going to discuss carb loading before race day. Many runners opt for a pre-race dinner featuring pasta to stock up on carbohydrates. If that suits your routine, then go for it. It's a valid choice, okay? Um, The key is to maintain a sense of balance and moderation. A good suggestion would be to aim for meals that are rich in carbohydrates, obviously moderate in protein, I'd say high in protein, um, but this is the general recommendation. And low in fat, because obviously fat takes quite a long time to digest. Fiber and spice as well should probably be avoided, considering if you're you're eating a meal that's very high in fiber and quite spicy the next day, you're probably going to feel that um, in your bowel movements, let's say. Ensure that your pre-race meal aligns with what you've consumed before um, during your previous um, runs and general marathon training. For some runners, uh, that may involve pasta, while others may prefer rice and bread or grains, sweet potatoes, white potatoes, whatever it may be, cereal, right before they go to bed. It's just whatever suits your uh, current practices. You shouldn't really switch it up too much um, when you're carb loading in the day or days before a marathon event. Um, don't switch it up too much, uh, especially to foods your body's not actually used to ingesting and taking in. Stick to uh, what you know and stick to what you know is going to um, benefit your performance, let's just say. okay. It's a common misconception that a pre-race dinner is the sole opportunity to load up on carbohydrates. However, it's important not to disregard the meals in the days leading up to the marathon. Okay, So for example, mine was on a Sunday, so I made sure to basically carb load the entire week or increase my carbs throughout the week um, towards the end of the week and say Friday and Saturday, I properly carb loaded on both those days, but didn't overconsume. obviously. Um, Yeah, it's incredibly vital 
what I'd also recommend and what the general recommendation is, is to have a good pre-race lunch, a lunch that's heavy in carbohydrates, not necessarily a big dinner. Because obviously if you have dinner and then you sleep, you get an early night because you probably have a race in the morning. You don't want to be sleeping on all, all those carbohydrates and you know have a stomach full of food um, and you don't want to be laying flat and letting it digest like that. What I find best is just having like a big pre-race lunch. So feast at lunchtime. So you you know, you have more time to actually digest the food in your stomach before you eventually sleep. And the carbohydrates have more time to get turned into glucose and stored as glycogen within the muscles. Um, a solid recommendation is that runners prioritize their pre-race lunch as it allows for better digestion. Um, dinner remains significant, but if you've had a proper lunch, um, you don't, do not need to overly rely on uh, dinner. Okay. So in terms of portion control, the term carb loading shouldn't be misinterpreted as uh, overindulgence. Simply aim to feel comfortably satisfied. For example, eating a large Domino's pizza and a pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream before um, a big run the next day or before race day um, is not going to be the best idea. Okay. So going to sleep on a full stomach may inhibit your uh, body's ability to get high quality sleep. So nutrition on race day in the morning. Make sure you have easy on the stomach carbohydrates um, at least an hour before the race. This is just the general recommendation of uh, the online community. You can have a uh, smoothie, a banana with peanut butter, toast, jam, bagel, um, granola bars, bowl of fruits. Um, but yeah, just stick to whatever works for you, whatever's high in um, fast digesting carbohydrates and what you like, obviously, you know, um, do not introduce new or un unfamiliar foods into your diet on race day as you don't want to take the chance of having to deal with unexpected stomach issues as you run your marathon. Personally, although I will explain this later on, I think an excellent um, pre-run snack full of fast digesting carbohydrates would be something like a piece of sourdough toast with peanut butter and a banana. Okay, that generally works for me. Um, but also I take a carb and electrolyte powder as well, which obviously, as the name suggests, has a decent amount of carbohydrates and electrolytes within it as well to support your training endeavors. All right, nutrition during the marathon. This is equally, if not more important than the nutrition before the run. Okay, so you might be inclined to forego snacks during the marathon and power through your run. However, data from the Research Center at Run Repeat, which analyzed 107.9 million race results from over 70,000 events in 209 countries um, between 1986 and 2018, reveals that the average marathon finishing time is 4 hours, 32 minutes, and 49 seconds. And whether your finish time falls below or above that mark, running continuously for hours demands proper nutrition during that time. Okay. So intra-race food, it's essential to fuel your body with food during the marathon and aim to consume 30 to 60 grams of easily digestible carbohydrates per hour. These carbohydrates can be sourced from sports drinks, energy bars, gels, chews, and fruits like bananas, for example. You do not need to come to a halt to eat, simply take small bites as you continue your run, which I did on my marathon. Um, so I had gels and I had saurine malt loaf lift bars. I think that's what they're called. If uh, those in the UK will know what a sorry malt loaf is, um, probably not 
a favourite of most people, but it's a bit of a staple in the um, British foods, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, I had a slightly different version this time. They're called uh, Sorine Lift Bars and they were blueberry flavoured. They're really good. I saw them in the supermarket. I was aiming to get the, the malt loaf um, snack size bar- bars, but I saw them and... Um, and I was like, oh yeah, those uh, those look pretty good. 27 grams of carbohydrates, only eight grams of sugar, and but it's still like wheat. It's like fast digesting um, carbohydrates. So I had my gels and I had those as well. And I was just snacking on them during the run, making sure not to take like huge bites. Because um, of course you don't want to just stop to chew. You know, you don't want to have a huge mouth and, and, and that means you can't breathe. Um, so you have to stop. Yeah, it's just not going to work. So just slowly snack on them as you run along. Gels, obviously gels you can, um, eat very quickly. Um, that's what they're designed, you know, they're designed for ease of use when running. Okay. So a helpful guideline is to take in a carbohydrate rich snack every 20 to 30 minutes, following it with three sips of water or hydration drink. If you're using a sports drink containing carbs, you'll receive both fuel and hydration in one. If you opt for a gel, be sure to follow it with water. Of course, you know, drinking water before and during the marathon is essential. Moving on. Intra-race hydration. Determining um, your precise hydration needs for a marathon can be a bit complex. It requires careful consideration of your unique characteristics as a runner um, and the conditions you'll encounter on race day. Some factors to ponder include your body weight, your level of perspiration, that being how much you sweat, um, your estimated race duration, um, and the expected race day conditions. The weather, for example, because you're probably perspiring more if it's warmer and less if it's colder, obviously. By considering these factors, you can arrive at a more accurate um, estimate of your minimum water requirements leading up to the marathon without the risk of overhydration. A useful practice is to aim for approximately 400 milliliters to 500 milliliters of water about two hours before the race commences, um, followed by an additional 200 mils um, 15 minutes prior to the start. Water requirements are subject to variation based on individual factors such as sweat rate and external elements uh, like heat, humidity, uh, exercise intensity, um, for example. As a general guideline, a consumption of 400 mils to 800 mils of water per hour is often adequate during a race. Hydration and electrolytes. Electrolytes are essential minerals that have an electric charge and play a crucial role in various physiological functions, particularly during marathon preparation and races. The main electrolytes include sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium, chloride, and bicarbonates. So sodium, let's just break them all down for you there. Sodium, is essential fluid balance and nerve function. It helps regulate blood pressure and aids in muscle contractions. Potassium is crucial for muscle and nerve function, heart health, and maintaining proper fluid balance in cells. Um, Calcium is vital for muscle contractions, bone health, and blood clotting. Magnesium supports muscle um, and nerve function. Again, it regulates blood pressure again and is involved in energy production. Chloride helps maintain fluid balance and supports proper digestion as a component of uh, stomach acid. Bicarbonate helps regulate blood pH and acid-base balance. So those are the main electrolytes. To ensure you get enough electrolytes during your marathon preparation and races, it's important to have a balanced diet. Okay, so 
Consuming a balanced diet with foods rich in electrolytes is very important. For example, bananas and oranges are good sources of potassium, while dairy products provide calcium. Um, Salting your meals tends to be demonized. Okay, so eating too much salt can, yes, it can cause high blood pressure, which increases the risk of um, heart attacks and strokes. However, on days when you've been running or working out for a long period of time and you've been sweating quite a lot, um, yeah, salting your meals will benefit your recovery and your ability to um, kind of recover your electrolyte balance and maintain a good electrolyte balance and uh, yeah, to reduce fatigue and drop in your performance during a race. It's important to intake enough uh, sodium, for example. So another way you could uh, ensure you get enough electrolytes during your training um, is to consume an electrolyte supplement. Consider using electrolyte supplements or sports drinks that provide a mix of sodium, potassium and other electrolytes. These can help maintain a good balance during your sessions. Personally, I use an electrolyte powder by um, SIS. It's called Go Electrolyte, and it provides, uh, I think it's, it's like a 40 gram serving, um, which is two scoops, and it contains 36 grams of carbohydrates and 500 milligrams of sodium, as well as zero sugar. There are plenty of electrolyte supplements on the market, um, but when purchasing, just ensure that they have adequate amounts of electrolytes, make sure to prioritize sodium. Okay. So around 300 to 700 milligrams of sodium um, is ideal, is optimal. Other electrolyte supplements with quality formulas include um, GYM Sport by Bear Performance Nutrition, providing 20 grams of carbohydrates and 350 milligrams of sodium um, per 24 gram serving, as well as Gator Light, which is a popular bottled um, electrolyte drink by um, Gatorade. Uh, it's popular in America. So per 590 mil bottle, it contains 490 milligrams of uh, sodium. And it does contain a bit of sugar, but I believe it's it's lighter on the sugar. That becomes glucose and your body uses that as a source of fast releasing carbohydrates. It's important to have a hydration strategy as well. Okay, so developing a hydration strategy that includes both water um, and electrolyte-rich fluids. Uh, the balance depends on your sweat rate and individual needs. But just to be knowledgeable of when you should take electrolyte drinks is is always important. And it's it's also important to know you know when you don't need it. You don't you don't want to um, over hydrate yourself or just hydrate yourself unnecessarily for no reason and say waste money on on certain electrolyte drinks that you think you need. For example prime hydration at no point ever should you probably need one of them unless you're looking for like a drink that tastes nice and you're tired of drinking water and any other beverage you have that but it's it's not you know the formula isn't amazing it's just very high in potassium with with little to no sodium whatsoever so it's going to really do nothing for you okay so um marathon race nutrition so during the race use sports gels choose or drinks that have a good amount of electrolytes within them to maintain balance and energy levels and ensure you don't like cramp up during your run. Um, be sure to follow the recommended dosages. Balancing your le- electrolyte intake during marathon preparations is essential for preventing imbalances, enhancing performance and staying safe in various race conditions. Okay, consult with a sports nutritionist to tailor your electrolyte strategy to your specific needs if you must. I mean, if you have funds to do so, I would highly recommend it rather than just developing your strategy by yourself online. You're always going to get better results if you if you go down the more professional um, uh, route um, with help 
from an external source like a nutritionist or dietitian um, or personal trainer, for example, that can recommend you a, a good formula and a good um, electrolyte strategy. However, you know, it's up to you whether you want to spend that money. Okay. Medical conditions as a result of electrolyte imbalance. During marathon preparation, especially in hot or prolonged races, you need electrolytes to maintain proper hydration and prevent electrolyte imbalances. Okay. Um, imbalances in these minerals can lead to various conditions. For example, hyponatremia. This occurs when there is too much sodium in the blood, often due to dehydration. Symptoms can include extreme thirst, confusion, um, and in severe cases, seizures or comas. Hyponatremia. So you have hypernatremia, hyper, ER natremia, and hyponatremia. This is uh, a result of low sodium levels in the blood typically due to excessive fluid intake without sufficient electrolyte replacement. It can lead to symptoms like nausea, headache, um, confusion, and in severe cases, again, seizures and comas. And then you have hypokalemia, okay, which is a condition characterized by low potassium levels in the blood, which can lead to muscle weakness, cramps, and heart irregularities, for example. So you want you know, none of those conditions. So it's always important to maintain um, um, electrolyte balance, adequate electrolyte balance in the blood. Okay, so that moves us on nicely to part three, which is recovery. Okay, so now we're moving on to part three, which is about recovery. So proper recovery during marathon training is vital to minimize risk of injury, enhance performance, and ensure that your body is well prepared for the next training session. Okay, here's a detailed guide on how to recover effectively. Nutrition, always important. Soon after your run, it's important to consume a recovery snack or a meal rich in carbohydrates and protein to replenish uh, those expended during the exercise. This aids in replenishing glycogen storage in the muscles and initiating muscle repair via protein synthesis. Okay, you have to hydrate well, obviously rehydrate with water or an electrolyte drink to replace the electrolytes lost um, in sweat during training. Within a couple hours post-run, have a balanced meal that includes lean proteins, complex carbohydrates and healthy fats. This promotes muscle recovery and overall replenishment. Net protein intake throughout the day should ultimately be paramount. You don't necessarily need to worry about downing a protein shake immediately after your workout. As I've already mentioned, it's it's a bit unnecessary. Net protein intake throughout the whole day is more important, of course. However, if you run fasted or you've eaten a, um, a very little protein in your pre-run meal, it will be important to get in that uh, post-run protein. Eating multiple high protein meals throughout the day is a good recommendation to keep protein synthesis high throughout the whole day. Consuming protein before bed is considered good practice. It can be beneficial for muscle repair and growth, controlling hunger, stabilizing blood sugar, and improving metabolism. Okay, so consuming protein before bed can help keep protein synthesis high throughout the night. Because when you sleep, you're obviously fasting, you're not eating anything. Okay, so it's probably the longest window throughout the whole 24 hour period where you're actually fasting. So it's important that if you, if you eat a lot of protein before you go to bed, not right before you go to bed, but just make sure that dinner a couple hours before you go to bed is very high in protein so that overnight your body can, you know, maintain um, good levels of protein synthesis and you're recovering adequately throughout the night, supplying your muscles with protein while you sleep, basically. And just to define protein synthesis, 
Um, it's the cellular process where your body creates new proteins. Proteins are made up of smaller, smaller units called amino acids. Okay, so amino acids are linked together um, in a specific order to form functional proteins. Okay, so this process is essential for various biological functions, including muscle growth, repair, and the production of enzymes and hormones. So amino acids are extremely important. Having all of them will be conducive to uh, adequate muscle repair. So amino acids, just to define them, they're the building blocks of protein, and there are 20 different types of amino acids. They can be categorized into three groups based on their functions. Okay, so you have essential amino acids, you have non-essential amino acids, and then you have conditional amino acids. Okay, so essential amino acids, also known as EAAs, are called essential because when the body cannot produce them on its own, it must obtain them through the diet. Okay, so the body can't produce these amino acids by itself, so it has to obtain it via the food that you intake. Okay, so these amino acids are essential for various biological processes and a lack of them in your diet can lead to health issues. Therefore, it is essential to include them in your diet um, to ensure proper growth, maintenance and overall well-being. Okay, so there are nine different types of essential amino acids and they include histidine, which is important for tissue repair and growth, isoleucine, necessary for energy regulation and muscle repair, leucine, which plays a crucial role in muscle protein synthesis. Very important. More on that um, soon. You have lysine, essential for collagen production and calcium absorption. You have methionine, which supports healthy metabolism and tissue growth. And then you have phenylalanine, which is involved in the production of neurotransmitters like dopamine, for example. You have threonine, um, important for maintaining proper protein balance. Um, you have tryptophan, um, which is a precursor to serotonin, a neurotransmitter. And you have valine as well, which aids in the uh, coordination and repair of tissues, basically. Next, we're moving on to non-essential amino acids, which basically um, they're called non-essential because the human body can synthesize them on its own and it doesn't require them through the diet. While they're still important for various biological functions, the body can produce them as needed, therefore making them non-essential. And next, we have conditional amino acids or CAAs. Okay, they're called conditional because their status as essential or non-essential um, can change depending on specific health conditions that that person has or circumstances. Okay, so while under normal conditions, the body can synthesize these amino acids perfectly okay and it doesn't need to intake them um, through your diet. During periods of um, illness, stress or certain health conditions, your body may not be able to synthesize um, the amino acids by itself. So it needs to intake them through supplementation or um, foods, for example, okay? Therefore making it conditional because it depends on your body's current state of wellness. Okay, these amino acids serve various functions in the body contributing to processes such as muscle growth, immune function, um, and the production of enzymes and hormones. They are crucial for overall health and well-being, as previously mentioned. Don't underestimate the importance of amino acids. However, I will say that like a BCA supplement um, is probably not necessary. Okay, so if you have a pretty good balanced diet with um, an adequate amount of animal protein and a varied amount of animal protein, you're probably getting in all the essential amino acids that you require, um, therefore making a BCAA supplement completely futile. Um, because what's the point in supplying five out of nine um, amino acids when you've already intaken all nine of the essential amino acids through your, you know, whole food diet anyway, just makes it completely unnecessary. Um, but that's a little side tangent. 
more on that on future episodes. That was the nutrition section of the recovery section. Now we're going to move on to rest and sleep. So getting adequate sleep to support your physical um, and mental recovery. So the general recommendations are for people aged 18 to 64 is seven to nine hours per night. Um, Incorporate rest days also into your training plan. These allow your body to repair and adapt to the stress of regular training, especially marathon training, for example. One interesting thing about sleep is that it releases growth hormone. So when you hit the sack after a long day of a strenuous activity, your body finally gets to rest. Okay. During that sleep, your body releases growth hormone that repair cellular and tissue damage, for example, um, invigorate muscle growth and stimulate bone building within your body. This makes you better prepared for the workout the next day. So growth hormone, just to define it quickly, um, also known as GH or HGH, human growth hormone, is a peptide hormone produced by the pituitary gland in the brain. Um, It plays a crucial role um, in uh, stimulating growth, regulating various metabolic processes and supporting the development and repair of tissues and organs throughout the whole body. Growth hormone is especially important during childhood and adolescence for promoting linear growth, but um, it continues to have essential functions like, you know, as we get older and we venture into adulthood, including the regulation of metabolism, muscle bone health, and overall well-being. How do we optimize sleep? Optimizing sleep is essential for overall well-being and performance. Okay. Um, here are some quick tips to help you optimize your sleep effectively. Okay. So to have a consistent schedule, for example, going to bed and waking up at the same time every single night is extremely important and can help your circadian rhythm achieve a good rhythm. Um, this helps you uh, regulate, yeah, yeah, it regulates your kind of like body's internal clock and you'll have an easier time actually falling asleep if you go to bed at that time that your body's used to and waking up at, you know, the same time every single day. For example, you want to wake up earlier. Okay. Simple. You just got to go to bed earlier and you've got to get your brain used to going to bed at that particular time. So you say you go to bed at 10 and you wake up at six and you get what, eight hours sleep. Okay. So you get a good amount of sleep. So your body knows to fall asleep at 10. So if you get into bed at that time, your body will know to put itself to sleep and it'll then know to wake itself up at six o'clock after you've had an adequate amount of sleep. Okay. It's not going to just keep you in bed till like 10, 10 o'clock or something like that because it slept enough. So it's probably just going to wake you up because it's the start of the day. It's recovered enough. It's slept enough. It's going to wake you up at that time. So if you get into that rhythm of going to bed early and waking up early, you'll be able to wake up earlier without feeling so groggy and tired and in need of a lion. Okay. You have to create a relaxing bedtime schedule as well. So getting in a calm state of mind before you're about to drift off to sleep is always highly important. Developing a calming routine before bed, such as reading, um, taking a warm bath or practicing relaxation techniques such as meditation can help you relax and therefore fall asleep. What people consider relaxing is obviously relative. So it depends on the individual. So just do whatever works for you, whatever helps you relax, whether it's having a bath with some like fancy bath bombs and candles and roses, or I don't know, stretching, doing exercise. Some people find that relaxing. That's their form of therapy. However, I probably wouldn't recommend that if you're trying to fall asleep because you know it's kind of it's quite stimulating doing exercise. It's probably going to keep you awake. Um, depending on if you burn yourself out, you know, after which you probably will fall asleep quite easily if you're completely and utterly exhausted. However, that's a complete side tangent. I apologize for that. Okay. So next on the list is having a comfortable sleep environment. Of course, this is extremely important. 
ensuring your bedroom is conducive to high quality sleep with a comfortable mattress, pillow, and appropriate room temperature, for example, and like blackout blinds as well, making sure the room is completely dark. Some curtains, for example, they're okay when it's actually dark, but when the sun rises, you can see the sunlight through the curtains. They're not particularly optimal for good quality sleep, because especially in the summer, when the sun rises earlier, you're probably going to be woken up early by the sun as your eyes absorb the light and then your brain, you know, it's like it's go times, you know, wake up, baby. Let's get going. Uh, next, very important. I'm sure everyone knew this was coming, but uh, limiting your exposure to screens is extremely important. Avoid electronic devices with screens, smartphones, tablets, TVs, laptops, whatever it may be. Make sure to stop your usage about an hour before you actually go to bed. The blue light admitted can interfere with your sleep and wake cycle. For example, you can use blue light blocking glasses or you can you know change the setting on your phone but i wouldn't recommend that that's a bit of a cop out it's just like oh yeah you know don't worry i use the blue light blocker on my iphone you know so i could just stare at it while i was in bed in the dark like no 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 just turn it off okay so the next point is being mindful of your diet so avoid large meals caffeine and alcohol close to bedtimes as they can disrupt your sleep, especially caffeine and alcohol. Alcohol, you know, reduces the ability to enter REM sleep and deep sleep, just ultimately providing you with a poorer uh, night sleep and caffeine as well will prevent you from actually falling asleep in the first place and can also, you know, prevent you from entering deep deep sleep. Um, so yeah, the, your ability to recover and rejuvenate during your sleep, even if you get the same amount of sleep will be much less. Your sleep quality will overall be a lot lower, um, under the influence of caffeine and alcohol close to, close to when you actually sleep. All right. Right. Next on the list is, uh, exercise regularly. Okay. So regular physical activity can improve sleep quality. However, a strenuous exercise right before bed will probably interrupt your sleep. Exercise influences sleep quality through various mechanisms. Exercise releases endorphins, uh, reducing stress and anxiety, making it easier to actually fall asleep. Um, exercise raises body temperature and the post-exercise cool down can signal to the body that it's time for sleep. Um, regular exercise helps regulate the circadian rhythm, leading to a more consistent sleep uh, sort of wake pattern. Exercise can alleviate um, symptoms of sleep disorders like sleep apnea and insomnia through various physiological and psychological effects. Okay, so next on the list we have enhanced sleep duration. Regular physical activity contributes to deeper and longer sleep and um, exercise can lead to exhaustion, making it easier to actually fall asleep and experience restful sleep in the first place. Okay, so the combined impact of these mechanisms contributes to improved sleep quality and overall well-being. However, it's important to time exercise appropriately and avoid stimulating effects close to um, bedtime as this can potentially disrupt sleep for some individuals. Those stimulating effects can be, you know, things like alcohol consumption and well, that's a depressant, not a stimulant, but exercise, you know, can be one of them as well. Just stuff like that close to bedtime will interrupt your sleep. Okay. Another point, practice sleep reduction techniques like meditation, deep breathing, and progressive 
muscle relaxation, for example, before going to bed. Naps throughout the day can also um, be an inhibiting factor and might not lead to optimal sleep quality because it kind of interferes with your circadian rhythm. Sleeping throughout the day, your body is not really expecting it. It expects you to obviously sleep when it gets dark at nighttime. Um, expose yourself to natural light throughout the day as well can help you fall asleep um, late at night. And as I've already mentioned, like kind of mold your environment around, you know, um, what's conducive for optimal sleep. So limiting uh, distractions, use blackout curtains, um, earplugs or white noise machines to minimize disturbances that can actually disrupt your sleep, for example, as well as like eye masks as well. I find they're extremely useful if your room cannot get properly blacked out um, when you go to bed. And also, uh, finally, limit your liquid intake before you actually sleep so you don't have to wake up to uh, piss during the night because that can, you know, waking up to piss just just interrupts your sleep. You're you're awake, although you're, you know, kind of half asleep and very lethargic and tired still, and you can probably fall back asleep instantly afterwards. You've still woken up and it's still interrupted that that deep, deep sleep potentially. Okay. So remember that optimizing sleep quality may require some trial and error. Okay, as individual needs and preferences vary, it's essential to prioritize sleep as it's a vital component to your overall marathon training and your ability to perform optimally. Active recovery is the next section. So on rest days, for example, or after particularly strenuous workouts, engage in light activities such as walking, cycling, or swimming. Um, I say light and then I say cycling and swimming. Um, you you know, engage in these activities, but don't overexert yourself when on a rest day, you know, you know your limits, you know when you're overexerting yourself. So just, you know, stay within that easy sort of boundary. Okay. Active recovery can help reduce muscle soreness and stiffness. Okay. Next section, we have stretching and flexibility. Include a stretching routine in your post-run cool down. Uh, focus on stretching your major muscle groups to enhance flexibility and reduce the risk of future injury. Personally, I recommend stretching 15 to 30 minutes before your run, as well as straight after your run. And if I have a big run, like say the next day, I'll stretch that night or lower body. I mean, I'm not too focused on stretching the upper body. Don't really utilize that during the run. Obviously core, but I don't know, I find it quite difficult to stretch the core. That's me personally anyway. And I just have time to stretch my legs 10 minutes, go to bed. Easy. No skin off my teeth, okay? It's not particularly difficult and it enhances your performance and recovery overnight, I believe. If I was running in the morning, I would ensure to stretch mainly the legs. Uh, but if you weight train as well, stretching the upper body can also be conducive to adequate recovery. Focus on uh, stretching your quadriceps, hamstrings, calves, uh, hip flexors, uh, tibius anterior, which is the shin muscle, um, and glutes as well when you do stretch your legs the night before a run or just before your run in the morning. Those are the main muscle groups in the legs that I believe are particularly important to stretch and focus on. What you can also do to help your recovery is foam rolling and a massage. So use a foam, foam roller to perform self-myofascial release. This technique can alleviate muscle tension and soreness. 
And then of course you can get a massage. Another thing you can do, you can have an ice bath or cold compressions, for example, that, you know, they've been uh, quite the talk of the town, um, you know, in the fitness industry, everyone and their dad is doing ice baths uh, because it's conducive to overall success. It's like, if you aren't waking up at like 4am and having an ice bath, like how do you expect to be successful? You, you know, you bum, get back to work, wagey, that regular stuff. All right. <laughs> anyway, slight side tangent. Yeah, the benefits of ice baths, for example, um, cold exposure, such as ice baths or cold water immersion, um, can help reduce inflammation by constricting blood vessels and limiting the inflammatory response. Okay, this can be particularly beneficial after intense workouts or competitions or marathons. Okay, pain relief. Cold exposure may alleviate muscle soreness and pain, making it more comfortable for athletes to continue um, with their training or physical activities. However, Contrary to that, to spice it up a little bit and add a negative to the almighty cold plunge, okay, it may reduce um, muscle hypertrophy. Okay, so cold exposure can temporarily slow down muscle contractions, um, which may inhibit muscle hypertrophy. Um, while this can be beneficial for recovery, it's important for athletes to distinguish between using cold exposure for recovery and avoiding it when, you know, they're, they're aiming for just purely muscle hypertrophy. Okay. So it's important to remember that one. Back onto the benefits. So it has a reduction in swelling. So cold exposure can limit swelling, which can occur as a result of physical activity or injury. Okay. Um, this can help reduce the risk of further muscle damage. All right. So next one is improved sleep. So cold exposure before bedtime may promote better sleep quality. Okay. By lowering the body temperature, quality sleep is essential for recovery and um, overall well-being, As we know, it is important to note that while cold exposure does have its benefits for recovery, it may not be ideal for those looking to maximize um, muscle hypertrophy. As we know, muscle growth is often stimulated um, by stress and um, inflammation the resistance training or um, endurance training produces. Okay, cold exposure may mitigate some of these processes. As we discussed previously, um, you had the foam rolling and massages, okay? Um, regular massages uh, with a trained sports massage therapist. People use it to address muscle tightness in knots. Um, massages offer a variety of uh, physical and mental benefits, uh, including relaxation, pain relief, improved circulation, muscle recovery, and um, stress reduction. Uh, they can enhance sleep, reduce inflammation, increase range of motion, and provide emotional support. Regular massages can contribute to overall well-being and are often used for various um, health purposes. Next, we have strength training. So incorporate strength training into your fitness marathon training routine. Um, this can help improve muscle balance, stability, and endurance, and reduce the risk of injury, as we've already discussed. So, cross training, and I don't mean just like cross training, like the the clean and jerks and your your classic cross training activities. I mean just kind of experimenting with different forms of uh, physical activity in different sports, for example, swimming and cycling. Um, you know, do this along with your running and, and gymming to provide a variety in your training um, and, you know, give your muscles a break because uh, it's like different type of training. When I say give your muscles a break, like running is quite specific. And if you're cycling, um, it, it's different. That's why when people train for a marathon, people don't cycle, you know, even though it's cardio still, uh, people don't cycle. You have to run because running is very specific. And if you're specifically training for a particular event like running, you want to, you want to practice for that 
by doing the activity, by running, not cycling, obviously. Okay, and then we have hydration, but maintaining proper hydration throughout the day is particularly important, not just for your runs, um, but it supports recovery as well. You know, having a good fluid balance, like a good electrolyte balance as well, it's, uh, it's conducive to optimal recovery. Relaxation techniques such as meditation or deep breathing exercises to manage stress and enhance uh, mental recovery. And one important thing to do while while considering all of these uh, points is to pay attention um, to signs of overtraining. Listen to your body. These signs can include persistent fatigue, muscle soreness, um, and a, you know steady decline in performance over time. Adjust your training plan accordingly. Okay, you know only you know what your body knows. I suppose. Um, Injury prevention, so addressing any nagging injuries or discomfort like uh, promptly, uh, you know, sooner rather than later is always important. Ignoring them can lead to more severe issues, obviously. So, you know, it's important to remember that recovery is a personalized process. Uh, You know, what works for one runner may not work for the other. Okay. Um, It's essential to experiment and determine which recovery strategies are most effective for you. Consulting with a coach or um, sports medicine professional, for example, can prove useful and provide you with valuable insight into tailoring your recovery plans to your specific needs. Now we're going to discuss supplements. This is part four of the Optimum Living Show. So in my marathon training journey, the use of supplements has proved very effective um, for me personally. Despite uh, my reliance on supplements, my diet was always uh, paramount. I ensured to um, get a good nutrient balance, um, eat enough protein, eat enough vegetables, eat enough fruits, eat enough healthy fats, for example, and, you know, supplements, they're not gonna, they're not gonna just like drastically improve your health if you take them. Okay. So like a, a shit diet, say with multivitamin is still like a shit diet, you know, just because you're taking multivitamin, it doesn't offset the damage. Okay. So during prep, I'd use like protein powder, creatine, um, pre-workout from time to time. Um, and some electrolyte powder as well, of course, for hydration purposes. Most of the time, I'd meet my protein requirement through animal-based uh, sources of protein throughout the day. But um, often, I'd drink a protein shake here and there, just for convenience sake and for assurance as well. So, so most of the time, I'd meet my requirement, as I said, through animal protein. But um, on top, I just like to have the protein shake just to ensure that I was one hundred percent definitely meeting that um, protein requirement that I'd set for myself, which is around 200 grams of protein a day. It was just to kind of eliminate the variable that um, protein intake would be. For example, if I wasn't like progressing with my running or recovery or increasing muscle mass, I would always look to protein intake and see if uh, see if that needs addressing. However, if that's always been fine and I have record um, through tracking my calories that, you know, I've always met the uh, protein intake, then there's no cause for concern there. You know, it eliminates that variable. Okay. So the protein shake mainly just for assurance, but other people, you know, could be how they get most of their protein in. Okay. So I took, uh, I was, as I said, I took creatine um, for a small boost in performance as creatine provides you with more energy. Um, so I, I did that before runs and before gym sessions. And the electrolyte powder, of course, is uh, for hydration purposes and it contains carbohydrates um, to you know improve my performance or at least regulate it. So each individual supplement protocol will be different at the end of the day. Um, it's about what works for you, of course, um, what you enjoy and what your body benefits from. For example, plenty of avid runners um, and gym goers that I know um, never use protein powder as a source, as they get enough protein from their diet anyway. Um, so it's just, you know, completely unnecessary. Um, protein powder is generally used because it's a cheap, convenient way to 
um, get your protein in basically relatively cheap anyway, but it's, it's by no means absolutely necessary. Um, if you don't have the funds for it and you'd rather spend it on whole foods, go for it. And there's always, you know, sub debate on, on the quality of pro- uh, protein powders and how good they are actually for you. Cause a lot of them have like sweeteners and stabilizers in them and emulsifiers, for example. Um, but whey protein, it contains uh, quite a lot of the amino acid leucine. So, um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a good high quality source of protein and your body, you know, should absorb it well. Um, just to dive deeper, since we're on the topic into uh, protein powders, um, just going to quickly define whey protein. So whey, whey is a liquid that separates from milk during cheese production. The uh, protein part of the whey is called whey protein. It is a complete high quality protein that contains all of the essential amino acids in addition. It is very digestible and absorbed from your gut quickly compared with other types of protein. Because of this, most protein powders contain all EAAs, essential amino acids. However, some might only contain BCAAs. For example, I use a whey protein concentrate powder from Bulk, which is like, it's a good high quality protein. It's like grass-fed whey protein, but it only contains... Um, the branch chain amino acids. So I believe that's like five out of nine essential amino acids. You know, that's that's not a concern. You know, if you're if you're having that protein, you're having it for the protein that's inside, and you'll hopefully be taking it alongside like a, a pretty whole diet. Okay. So you, you sourced all of your essential amino acids from various other uh, food sources throughout your day, and you're not just relying on whey protein to get all of the amino acids in. That's probably a poor idea. Okay. Um what matters is uh the protein concentrate of the powder, not its EAA concentration. Okay. So if your diet is whole containing various animal proteins, you should be fine and just eliminate the need to um, concern yourself about the BCA or EAA content of protein powders, for example. So on the subject of EAAs, essential amino acids, however, whey protein contains the most amount of um, the EAA known as leucine, as uh, previously mentioned, compared with other protein powders. Um, Leucine is an amino acid that outperforms all other amino acids in uh, muscle protein synthesis. And because of that, leucine is crucial for those wanting to regain lost muscle um, or perform better during their workouts, okay? Whey has a 10% leucine content, making it a protein source with the highest um, amount of leucine, okay? Leucine is an essential amino acid that helps to promote muscle growth and reduce um, recovery time after exercise. Most other protein powders um, contain leucine, um, for example, casein, uh, soy, but personally, I wouldn't recommend certain types of protein. But, you know, my opinion is irrelevant, especially when we're discussing science. Whey protein isolate. You may see that in shops. Um, you may wonder what the difference is between whey protein concentrate and whey protein isolate. Well, I'm here to just discuss that very quickly. So whey protein isolate is extremely similar to whey concentrate. Um, it's only been through um, extra filtering just to increase its purity. This means that whey isolate is typically 90, 95% protein. So it's pretty pretty high, pretty high up there, good concentration. All right. Whereas the whey protein concentrate tends to be around 75 to 80%, but of course it depends um, a lot on the type of protein that you're actually buying. All right. Loads of different types of whey protein. It's, it's, you know, all over the place. So it just, you know, entirely depends on what protein you're buying. So whey protein isolate has um, other nutrients removed, causing it to have less fat, fewer carbs, and um, therefore fewer calories as well than whey 
protein concentrate. So if you're looking for a premium whey protein with the highest concentration of protein per gram, whey protein isolate is your best option. Okay. So other forms of protein include casein protein. So casein is a type of protein um, found in milk, once again, making up about 80% of the content in cow's milk. Sorry. Um, it's a slow digesting protein and is often used as a dietary uh, supplement. Okay. Casein forms curds in the stomach, leading to a slower and more sustained release of amino acids into the bloodstream. This makes it an ideal choice um, for people. It's like a nighttime protein drink, so they can take it before bed and, you know, protein synthesis occurs overnight as your as the protein is digesting slowly and slowly releasing protein into the bloodstream. Okay. Casein is also rich in amino acids, um, including leucine. And it's commonly used to support muscle growth and recovery, of course. Okay, so next on the list, we have collagen protein. So collagen is the most abundant protein in the human body and is found in the skin, um, the tendons, the ligaments, the bones, and other connective tissues. Um, collagen protein is typically derived from animal sources. For example, you have like bovine collagen, you have like marine collagen, bovine being from like, you know, beef or cow, and then marine obviously being from the sea, fish in the sea, um, and it's used in dietary supplements. It's known to kind of hold uh, potential benefits um, to the skin, joint health, and connective tissue supports. Okay, collagen protein supplements are often used to promote skin elasticity, reduce joint pain, and support hair and nail growth as well. Next on the list, you have your plant-based proteins. Okay, plant-based protein powders are derived from various plant sources and offer an alternative to animal-based proteins, okay? While they can be a suitable choice for many individuals, um, plant-based proteins may not be as bioavailable as some of their animal protein counterparts, all right? Due to a difference in like amino acid profile, they may be lacking a few essential amino acids. Uh, so yeah, you know, that's why you, you may hear that people on vegan diets, um, they've got to be careful with what they're actually eating, especially if they're trying to like um, lift weights and, you know, put on a lot of muscle. Um, they've got to have an extremely diverse diet to make sure to intake uh, all of the essential amino acids, okay? Because obviously the, you know, amino acid concentration in uh, animal protein so sources such as meats and fish is, is a lot higher than it is in, say, uh, beans, soybeans, or like chickpeas or other plant-based uh, sources of protein. All right. Here is a list of common plant-based protein powders and an explanation of their potential differences in bioavailability. Okay. Starting with pea protein. So pea protein is uh, derived from yellow split peas and is rich in um, essential amino acids, but maybe lower in um, certain amino acids like methionine, um, which supports a healthy metabolism and tissue growth. Its bioavailability is good, but it may not match that of animal-based protein sources. Next on the list, we have rice protein. So rice protein is made from brown or white rice and is often considered lower in lysine, which is an essential for collagen production and calcium absorption, um, but higher in methionine. Um, the amino acid balance may not be ideal for some individuals, but the rice protein can still be a decent option for some people. Um, right. Then you have soy protein. All right. Soy protein is a complete protein containing all the essential amino acids. It has good bioavailability, but um, may be less preferred due to some allergenic concerns and phytoestrogen content, which has been up for debate for a very long time. But some people don't really like the taste of it. Simple as that. Some people prefer whey protein. I have tried vegan protein. I believe I tried um, 
pea protein before, but it's just shocking. It's like like dirt, basically. Whey protein is a lot more like a like a milkshake, obviously. Next on the list, you have hemp protein. Hemp protein is made from hemp seeds and provides a balanced profile of amino acids. Its bioavailability is generally good, but it may not be as rich in um, amino acids as other plant-based sources and the animal-based sources as well. Bioavailability differences arise from the amino acid uh, consumption and digestibility of plant-based proteins. While they can provide sufficient protein for many people, they may require a more diverse dietary approach okay, to ensure a complete amino acid profile. Um, additionally, factors like anti-nutrients um, or fiber content in some plant-based sources can affect protein absorption and bioavailability. So best to be careful, best to do your research. There are, as we mentioned, some complete plant-based uh, protein powders for you to intake to uh, help you um, on your marathon training journey and recover adequately after runs. But overall, I would say animal-based protein powders like weight protein, casein, or collagen protein, for example, they tend to be more complete and have a better ability to keep your body in a constant state of protein synthesis and repair and recovery in general just because of their more rich amino acid content or they're richer in amino acids. All right, so next on the supplement list, we've already mentioned it. Um, it's one of the most researched supplements, one of the most decorated um, supplements in the industry. Everyone uses it nowadays. We have creatine, okay? So creatine stands as one of the most widely used and efficient supplements available with a wealth of scientific research supporting its effectiveness. Multiple studies have consistently demonstrated that creatine supplementation can enhance strength, power, muscle size, and overall muscular performance. Creatine holds significant advantages for athletes, sports enthusiasts, and bodybuilders due to its primary role in enhancing energy production. While the body can naturally produce creatine, supplementation becomes necessary just because the body can't produce like enough of it to have like any significant benefit. So you've got to get it from an external source and unlock its performance-boosting benefits, notably in terms of strength, power, and muscle development and performance. As we mentioned, this becomes especially pertinent in activities like sprinting, where it has the potential to improve overall exercise capacity and anaerobic performance. Moreover, creatine uh, supplementation might aid in accelerating post-exercise uh, recovery by mitigating muscle damage and inflammation associated with intense physical exertion. Supplementing with creatine has the potential to boost muscular endurance, enabling runners to sustain higher intensity efforts for a longer duration. This advantage becomes especially valuable um, during interval training um, or the demanding final stretches of a race, for example, of your marathon race. You know, I took creatine on marathon day and, well, it was easier than I expected, to be honest. And that could have been to do with just my, you know, the immense amounts of training I've done. Could have been to do with the fact that I took creatine on the day and pre-workout just to get my muscles and my mind numb to all the pain, just to power through it. But you never know. It definitely helped. I took probably around 10 grams of creatine before I started, you know, and I was heavy on the creatine, you know, leading up to the marathon day, you know, because I wanted to get the muscles saturated with creatine, ensuring that I had an adequate amount stored in the muscles for optimum performance. Additionally, Creatine plays a role in enhancing glycogen storage within muscles, a crucial energy source for endurance activities such as long-distance running. Um, this capacity to delay the onset uh, of fatigue contributes to an overall improvement in endurance performance. Creatine helps convert ADP, adenosine diphosphate, into ATP, which is adenosine triphosphate, okay, by donating a phosphate group to 
ADP. This process rapidly regenerates ATP, the primary energy currency of cells, allowing for quick bursts of energy during high-intensity uh, activities like weightlifting or sprinting, for example. Adenosine diphosphate, or ADP, is responsible for storing and transferring energy in cells. When it receives an additional phosphate group, it becomes ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is the primary energy currency of cells. Okay, So the com conversion of ADP to ATP and vice versa allows cells to regulate and use energy efficiently in the body for various biochemical um, purposes all right, and processes. So creatine just helps in that conversion. It is extremely useful. I would definitely uh, vouch for creatine, especially if you're training for a marathon, of course. All right, so next on the list, we've got every gym rat's favorite supplement. We have pre-workout. I've also titled this section pre-workout and caffeine as well, because I mean, most pre-workouts nowadays have pretty shy formulas and the only useful thing within them is caffeine, okay? Because caffeine is ergogenic, meaning it reduces fatigue, enhances uh, performance in general. All right, so caffeine is a stimulant. As we know, it's a popular supplement among athletes and its use has prompted some organizations like the National Collegiate um, Athletic Association, or NCAA, to restrict its high dosage use. Okay, a stimulant, um, just to define it quickly, is a substance that increases alertness, um, energy, and activity in the body, often by stimulating the central nervous system. Caffeine is ergogenic, as I mentioned. It improves performance by acting on the central nervous system. It blocks adenosine, a neurotransmitter that promotes relaxation and sleepiness. By doing so, caffeine increases the release of other neurotransmitters like dopamine, enhancing alertness and focus, and reducing the perception of effort during exercise, for example. Very crucial point there, reducing the perception of effort. So when doing very high intensity exercise, caffeine almost kind of like, as I said earlier, just kind of blocks the pain. It just um, almost makes you not realize it when you're actually in that much pain, or it helps to at least, all right? Um, caffeine also stimulates the release of adrenaline, which can increase heart rate and blood flow to muscles and the release of energy stores, providing a temporary boost in um, physical and mental performance, all right? Just to define ergogenic quickly, ergogenic refers to something that enhances or improves physical performance, typically in the context of sports, exercise, or athletic activities. Ergogenic aids, for example, are substances or techniques used to boost an individual's physical capabilities, endurance, and strength, or their overall athletic performance. These aids can include supplements, equipment, strategies, or interventions that aim to provide a competitive advantage or enhance physical capabilities during sports or exercise. Right, so caffeine and endurance training. All right, a comprehensive review of studies has shown that moderate doses of caffeine, ranging from 1.4 to 2.7 milligrams per pound of body weight, or three to six, milligrams per kilo of body weight can modestly enhance endurance. Okay, In a specific study, well-trained cyclists who ingested 100 milligrams and 200 milligram doses of caffeine combined with a carbohydrate electrolyte solution during late stage exercise outperformed those who consumed only the carbohydrate electrolyte solution. All right. So furthermore, the cyclists who consumed the 200 milligram dose completed the time trial faster than those who consume the 100 milligram dose, all right? Another line of uh, research investigated the impact of coffee, known for its naturally high caffeine content. Um, studies suggest that both caffeine and caffeinated coffee offer similar benefits for improving endurance and exercise performance, all right? 
caffeine and weight training. Ongoing research is shedding light on the use of caffeine in strength or power-based activities, although findings remain um, relatively inconclusive as of late. For instance, one study, 12 participants ingested either 1.4 milligrams of caffeine per pound of uh, body weight, that's uh, th about three milligrams per kilo, um, or a placebo um, just before a bench press, all right? So they consumed this amount of caffeine per pound of body weight just before they were about to bench press. Those who consumed caffeine exhibited a notable increase um, in force and power output compared to those that took the placebo pill. Okay, similarly, another study involved 12 individuals who regularly consumed caffeine showed that caffeine intake enhances mean power output and mean bar velocity during a series of bench press throws when compared to the placebo pill. Caffeine in those studies improve people's performance on the bench press. However, a well-designed, albeit small, study found that caffeine intake before a workout did not significantly impact muscle strength as measured by a hand grip strength in CrossFit athletes, for example. Moreover, a study investigating the influence of high-dose caffeine on maximum bench press uh, strength in male athletes who regularly consumed coffee showed no significant improvements compared to a placebo. All right. So it's, I'm always here to show both sides of the spectrum. And if I dig up studies that display one side of the story, and then I find one that displays the other side of the story, I'm not just going to pick sides. I'm going to relay all the information that I find out. All right. So existing research suggests potential benefits of caffeine for power-based activities. Okay. Though further research studies are 100% necessary. So we can get a conclusive answer um, that determines whether it is beneficial to weightlifting performance, okay? Caffeine and weight loss. So caffeine is a prevalent component in weight loss supplements. Its mechanisms in the body include the stimulation of fat breakdown in fat cells, elevation of heat production, and heightened fat oxidization in individuals in various weight categories, including those with an average weight, those that are overweight, and those that are obese. All right. Additionally, caffeine has a modest impact on increasing daily calorie expenditure. All right. So when consumed before exercise, it can um, substantially enhance the release of uh, stored fat, for example. A comprehensive analysis of studies revealed that the ingestion of 1.4 to 2.7 milligrams of caffeine per pound of body weight, notably amplified fat burning during physical activity, particularly among sedentary or untrained individuals. All right? It's important to note that while caffeine contributes to enhanced fat metabolism, um, there is no evidence that suggests that caffeine consumption alone leads to significant weight loss. When should you take caffeine? This is very important, a little bit of a tangent, but it's extremely important. So in the morning, the ideal time to enjoy your morning coffee can vary based on individual factors and personal preferences. Nevertheless, as a general suggestion, um, it's often recommended to wait around 30 to 60 minutes before taking any sort of caffeine, all right? Andrew Huberman, a neuroscientist and associate professor at Stanford University School of Medicine, goes a step further and he waits 90 to 120 minutes for his morning coffee. So he explains that he delays caffeine because one of the factors that induces sleepiness is um, the accumulation of adenosine in our system. So adenosine levels increase the longer awake. So early in the morning, they're likely to be low. All right. So your body also naturally produces higher cortisol levels in the morning, a hormone responsible for alertness. Waiting around 30 to 60 minutes allows these cortisol levels to start decreasing, potentially enhancing the wake-up effects of coffee. 
All right, so drinking coffee too soon after waking when cortisol levels are already um, elevated may diminish the desired energizing impact of coffee. So it's best to, you know, almost let yourself wake up a little bit before you actually ingest any coffee. So like, you know, I'd say an hour to an hour and a half before having your first coffee is, is fine. And anyway, it will go very quickly in the morning. You're a bit groggy, you know, you're having a shower, you're getting ready to start the day. It'll probably go quite quickly. And most people... um probably drink a coffee like an hour after they wake up anyway. I don't think anyone, well, I'm sure people do, but um, I don't know a lot of people that wake up and instantly the first thing they do is switch on the coffee machine as they get out of bed. Okay. Most people get ready first and then they have their coffee and head out and go to work or do whatever they need to do during the day. All right. So that was in the morning. Um, Not in the evening though, because it will disrupt your sleep. Since caffeine is a stimulant, it can interfere with your sleep. Consuming coffee too close to your bedtime can make it difficult for you to actually fall asleep um, and it will disrupt the quality of sleep that you actually get, inhibiting you from, you know, reaching adequate stages of REM sleep or deep sleep. Okay. Um, It's generally recommended to avoid caffeine consumption at least six hours before you plan to go to bed because caffeine has like a half-life, I believe, of five to six hours. So you consume caffeine at six o'clock, you go to bed at 12 o'clock, there's still going to be half the amount of that caffeine that you... um, uh, ingested at six still in your system. Okay. So just be mindful of that. My caffeine intake personally during prep. So on a daily basis, um, during marathon prep, I would have a cup of coffee in the morning and one around lunchtime as well, probably after lunch. Um, however, I'd make sure not to ingest, um, caffeine after 2 PM. Okay. That was, that was kind of like, you know, one or 2 PM. That was like my cutoff point just cause I would go to bed usually around nine from nine to 11 between, you know, between then. Um, so yeah, I didn't want to interrupt my sleep. So if I had like a coffee at like four, which, you know, some people probably do, um, it would definitely interrupt my sleep and interrupt my ability to like fall asleep as well as the quality of sleep that night. So on the rare occasions, I'd use, you know, a pre-workout supplement as well. Um, I use the Optimum Nutrition Kiwi flavor, I believe, just, you know, regular standard pre-workout. It's pretty good, but it's, it's just mainly like caffeine. So yeah, pre-workouts often contain high levels of caffeine and creatine, which as we know, um, benefit performance. They're both ergogenic. So that was caffeine and pre-workout. So now we're going to move on to um, slightly, you know, non-essential supplements, but just, uh, just you know, supplements that I thought were good for you to know a little bit about. Okay, so we have multivitamin slash magnesium supplements. All right, personally, during my marathon prep, I took a daily multivitamin and a uh, magnesium as well in, in pill form. And I got them from Holland and Barrett. So they were quite high quality multivitamin and magnesium supplements. But I, I do believe that the quality doesn't differ too much between say like su- supermarket bought and um, health shop bought. You know, the only difference is that the, you know, the health shops think they can, you know, they, they have some sort of like a privilege. They can like ramp up the prices because they're this sort of bougie little health store. So of course they're going to you know, want to seem like they offer the uh, superior formula. It may be true, to be honest, but uh, I, I believe I read somewhere that the, you know, formulation is pretty similar and the desired benefit from each will be pretty similar as well. Um, the only difference is the price tag. I mainly took these pills for like assurance to eliminate the variable that my health and training performance could be reduced due to a magnesium or vitamin, say, deficiency, just to kind of eliminate that. So if they were being reduced, I knew it wasn't my protein intake. I knew it wasn't my like, um, like vitamin or magnesium intake. You know, those were it's good to eliminate as many variables as possible, okay? Just so you can properly figure out what's actually causing your performance to uh, be reduced. 
Right, incorporating magnesium into your marathon recovery regimen can be vital due to its natural mus muscle relaxing properties. Uh, magnesium plays a crucial role in uh, muscle contraction, skeletal strength, and supporting the elevated oxygen consumption needed for athletic performance at high intensities. This supplementation can aid in counteracting fatigue and expediting recovery, making it a valuable addition to your post-marathon routine. While it is possible to get adequate amounts through food, this requires eating a nutrient-dense, balanced diet, which a lot of people, you know, they find that quite difficult. Magnesium is widely distributed in plant and animal foods and is typically found in foods with a higher fiber content. All right, so the best food sources for magnesium include nuts, seeds like pumpkin and chia seeds and they're particularly high in magnesium um, you have leafy green vegetables uh, fortified cereals uh, beans whole wheat bread avocados um, potatoes brown rice milk and yogurts however a study featured in the international journal of sports nutrition examines the impact of 365 milligrams of magnesium supplementation. So just for reference, the NHS recommends 300 milligrams a day for men and 270 milligrams a day for women. So they examined the impact of 365 milligrams of magnesium supplementation on marathon runners who are not deficient in magnesium. In comparison to the placebo group that did not receive any supplementation, those athletes who were supplemented did not exhibit elevated levels of magnesium in their blood or muscles. Consequently, the researchers observed no significant effects um, on marathon performance, muscle damage, or post-exercise muscle recovery. The outcome is likely because the runners had significant magnesium levels at the study's outset. So in summary, unless a clinical deficiency of magnesium is present, supplementing with it may not be deemed necessary. It might be more advisable to prioritize dietary sources rich in magnesium. Of course, you know, before taking a magnesium supplement or a multivitamin supplement or an omega-3 supplement or a vitamin D supplement, whatever it may be, it's important to focus on diet first and taking whole nutrient-dense foods before you start taking pills. That's, that's always been the case. I believe that's extremely important, you know. After all, most dietary sources of magnesium consist of healthy nutrient-rich foods that also supply a vital balance of macronutrients, micronutrients, and antioxidants, which can aid in both pre- and post-exercise nutrition. However, magnesium's significance should not be overlooked when crafting your pre- and post-race marathon plan. It is important, extremely important. Right, multivitamins real quick. It's important to remember that an unhealthy diet with a multivitamin is still an unhealthy diet. As I've said, a multivitamin cannot in any way replace a healthy, well-balanced diet. The main purpose of a multivitamin is to fill nutritional gaps and provide only a hint of the vast array of healthy nutrients and chemicals found in food. It cannot offer fiber, for example, or flavor and enjoyment of foods. Um, so keep an optimal diet. Always. However, multivitamins can play an important role when nutritional requirements are not met by food. But still, that does not mean eat burgers all day and have a multivitamin and you'll be fine. You've still eaten the burgers, okay? You've still done that damage to your body. Having a multivitamin is not going to do jack to repair it, right? So if you eat a healthy, nutrient-dense, balanced diet, a multivitamin is not necessary when in marathon prep, in my opinion. Okay, so that is the end of the very first episode of the Optimum Living podcast. This was the first part installment of a two-part series covering the basics of marathon preparation. In this episode, we have covered four out of the eight subtopics categorized by me. Join us next time 
in the second installment of this series where we traverse the remaining subtopics exploring the equipment necessary for marathon training, the benefits and drawbacks of recreational and excessive endurance training, my own personal marathon training journey, and discussing the latest literature and exploring interesting studies relating to marathon preparation and endurance sports in general. I do hope you have enjoyed. Until next time, goodbye.